Good evening. Well, we're continuing in 1 Samuel chapter 22. I really enjoy Thursday nights. It's a little bit different. Those of you who are here know that it's a little bit different. And I don't like it just because it's different, although many times that's the way I am. I think what I enjoy about this is the opportunity to see how we can approach the scriptures and understand that God has given us the scripture in a way that we can clearly understand. A lot of times people will, you know, out of reverence for the scriptures, come at them with an understanding that all the things that are written here are, are somehow um, just sanitized and, you know, we... we place people on pedestals and so when you hear about you know the the tribes of Israel and you hear about you know uh, Abraham and David these mighty men of God we have this idea about them that really is far from the reality of who they were and the reality of who they were is pretty messy and God has given us the truth of who they were so that we could fully understand it. And so when we approach the scriptures and you think, wow, I wonder what's going on. Many times all you have to do is put yourself in that situation and say, how would you feel if you were here? And then you get an idea of how they felt because they were like you and I. People of like passions, the book of Hebrews tells us. They had the same kind of fears, insecurities, problems, egos, all those things. And so as we look at these things and we think, oh, wow, what's going on here? Many times all you have to do is think, what would I do if I was in this person's place? And you can do that with the person who's doing well as well as the person who's doing bad. I mean, at least I can. I know what it's like to, to be in these situations. And yeah, maybe I, I haven't murdered someone. I said maybe, like maybe I have, but I, it's, I haven't. But, you know, maybe you haven't gone to the extent that some of these people have. But you know what it's like to be jealous. You know what it's like to be angry. You know what it's like to have that kind of rage and disdain for someone. At least I do. And so you can see how a person can be blinded by these things and move their lives forward. And we're here in chapter 22, kind of at a midpoint now between this Saul and David change of regimes. We've seen Saul lifted up and fall down, and we're probably going to get to one of the darkest moments in his reign as we go through this chapter. And so let's start at verse 1, chapter 22. David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him. And he became their commander. About 400 men were with him. From there, David went to Mizpah in Moab and said to the king of Moab, Would you let my father and mother come and stay with you until I learn what God will do for me? So he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him as long as David was in the stronghold. But the prophet Gad said to David, Do not stay in the stronghold. Go into the land of Judah. So David left and went to the forest of Herath. As David is fleeing, and we saw that he was fleeing last week in chapter 21, he went down to the Philistine territory, acted like a crazy person, and was able to escape with his life. And, and there were a couple of psalms written during that time. Well, there's a, a couple of psalms that are written at this point two, 
which is kind of great to be able to read a passage and then read a song that was born at this time. And it's interesting to know that the word Adullam, the cave that he went to, the word means refuge. And so he goes to the cave of refuge, but turn to Psalm 57. And at the top of the psalm, you'll see for the director of music to the tune of Do Not Destroy of David, a miktam. Again, a miktam means a type of song or a musical stanza or phrase. We're not sure exactly. And it says, when he fled from Saul into the cave. Okay, so here is the song that was born out of this time when David fled to the cave, Adullam, the cave meaning refuge. Verse 1, it says, have mercy on me, my God, have mercy on me, for in you I take refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. I cry out to God most high, to God who vindicates me. He sends from heaven and saves me, rebuking those who hotly pursue me. God sends forth his love and his faithfulness. I'm in the midst of lions. I am forced to dwell among ravenous beasts. Interesting when we see the group of people he was hanging around with, those who were in debt and those who were distressed and those who were discontented. Maybe, I don't know. Interesting. Be exalted, verse 5, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They spread a net for my feet. I was bowed down in distress. They dug a pit in my path but they have fallen into it themselves. My heart, O God, is steadfast. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make music. Awake, my soul. Awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you, Lord, among the nations. I will sing of you among the peoples, for great is your love. Reaching to the heavens, your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Be exalted, O God. Above the heavens, let your glory be over all the earth. And again, we see what a beautiful song that's born at a time when things aren't really that good. If you were to read that psalm and know the circumstance that's taking place here in Samuel, you probably wouldn't think that it would be written at a time like this. And so as he goes into this cave called a refuge, he writes a song that says, God, you're my refuge. Oh, this cave might be a temporary place for me, but God, you're the real place for me. And you're the one who I'm going to trust in at this time when people are hotly pursuing me, when there's lions and ravenous beasts all around me. And he says, my heart is steadfast. He repeats it, my heart is steadfast. In fact, I will awaken the morning with your praise. When the sun comes up, I will be there to celebrate you and to greet dawn with your praise because... Your love and your faithfulness, they're higher than the heavens, higher than the earth. And once again, we see that David is indeed a man of faith. Faith. What does faith look like to you? There's a couple of things that take place here that I think are interesting. In verse 3, David goes to the king of Moab and he says, hey, let my father and mother stay with you because he's being pursued and he knows if he's being pursued that Saul can easily go after his family. And he says, until I learn what God will do for me. That's faith. Does that strike you as faith? There's a question mark there. Does your faith have a question mark or is your faith Surety. No, faith means you're sure. Really? If you know what's going to happen, how can you call it faith? The whole idea of faith is you don't know. Abraham was a man of faith because God sent him to a country and he didn't know where it was. He just said, go that way. 
And Abram went and he didn't know. It's like God said, I'll tell you when you get there. And so David knows he's been anointed by Samuel. He's had the presence of God come upon him. He's been spoken over, prophesied over that he is going to be king, but not right now. Right now, I'm waiting to see what's going to happen to me. And this is a man of faith. You see, if you take faith and your belief in God and you remove from that faith all vulnerability, if you remove from that faith all mystery and question, what you end up with is an extremism. You end up being a person of certainty and pretty soon you're extreme in your certainty because by definition, faith means uncertainty. And if you consider faith to be completely certain about everything and you know everything and that's why you have faith, then you've moved from a position of dependency to being extreme and no longer having to trust God because you already know. David didn't know. You and I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. It's a promise to no one. James tells us we're like a vapor. We're here and then we're gone. And our faith is in God. We are steadfast in him. He is our refuge, not our 401k, not our health, not our home, not our relationships, family. He is our refuge. That's putting our faith in him. And even though all these other things can crumble and fall apart, we can be steadfast in the midst of uncertainty. Doesn't that strike you as contradictory? I can be steadfast. I can be sure in the middle of uncertainty. No, I need certainty so I can be sure. No, you need uncertainty and be sure and trust in the Lord. And so here we see what faith looks like. And we see a psalm that gives us a beautiful picture of it, even though he's in a cave. And I like verse 2, and it says, All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him. Oh, boy. (laughs) Would these be the people you would pick? The word distress means they had problems. Okay, debt means they owed money. They, they weren't financially successful. And the word discontented means they had a bitterness of soul. They were bitter. Some bad things have happened to them and they had this bitter streak with them. This is not the kind of people you would want to start out with. At least I don't think so, unless you're sadistic. I mean, this is just not what we would pick. If I'm going to choose people, I would like people who are successful, who are not bitter, but are content and happy. People who are going to make me feel better. But that's not who he has. He is like a magnet to those who are in the same situation as him. But when you think about David, he doesn't come across as being a person of distress, debt, or discontented, even though his circumstances are all that. And what happens is these people who are just drawn to David because of circumstance that are similar to him, and we'll see that more so at the very end, they're drawn to him and they move from this group of distressful, debted, discontented people to being mighty men of valor. It talks about in First Chronicles chapter 12, which means that there was a change that took place from who they are here to who they would be. And that change was because of David. He was a leader. And he didn't leave them in this place of being discontented. Leave them in this place of just being bitter and being distressful. 
he moved them to a place of being grumbling and complaining to a place of having purpose and having in that purpose actually showing up that they were mighty and he taught them how to fight. And some of them are some pretty bad dudes. We're going to see if we go through Chronicles. I mean, who would have thunk it? That this group of misfits would turn into these mighty men. How do we see people? Do we see them as potential? Or do we see them as liabilities? Seth Godin, in, he's kind of a, a modern business guru in his book called Tribes talks about the shift that has taken place from society's business of having factories that need managers to maintain the status quo to being a place where more people are able to get more information and actually contribute to companies more so than ever before. And if you think your job is just to manage people, to keep them at this level, then you are going to miss the opportunity to engage in the wealth that is available now which with individuals because they can learn so much. And he talks about moving from a position of being a manager to being a leader that actually listens to people, that actually engages people so that they can be instructed and entrusted and enabled to contribute and do more than you could do by yourself. You see, it's getting that person's idea that says, well, I never would have thought of that. That's why you needed them. But if you just want them to do what you want them to do, then guess what? Your world will stay as small as you are. The reason David turned these men into the mighty men of valor is because he saw in them the ability to be more than they even saw in themselves. That's what a leader does. That's what Jesus does. That's what he does to us when he calls us his children. When he says, you are the light of the world. No, 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 you're the light of the world, Jesus. I'm just a moon. You're the sun, I'm the moon. You shine, I just reflect you. Well, that sounds nice and humble, but that's not what he said. He said, you are the light of the world. You're a city on a hill that can't be hid. Do we see ourselves in that place? Do we recognize ourselves as that? Because that's how Jesus sees us. Or do we settle? Do we settle for less? And then, how do you see people? Do you invest in them, or are they there just for you? Leaders have to be patient, and leaders have to be generous. If you're not those things, how can you develop what is in other people? It's kind of like parenting. You, you hope and pray that the child will learn how to go to the bathroom in a toilet someday. And you hope and invest so that they'll be able to go out and get a job. And you invest your life so that they can move on with their lives. Much the same thing as leaders. You, you invest in these people so that they can move forward. And, and that's what we see David doing in this place. And so here's the, the foundation that is led, set up for this chapter. David sets his parents up so that they're going to be doing good. And a prophet there in Gad tells David, don't stay here in the stronghold. In other words, don't stay where the king of Moab is because if you do... Bad things are going to happen is the implication. So David leaves. Now, what's interesting here is this prophet sides with David, even though the king, Saul, is king. Why do you think that is? 
Why is this prophet for David and not for the king Saul? Any thoughts? He knows. He's got that. I heard. Any other thoughts? What, what did? How has Saul been with the prophets? So he had a good reputation with them, with Samuel. Not really good, huh? You see, people help people they like. And David has made friends. And because he's made friends and has been a friendly guy, it it comes back to him. Remember Jesus' example in the parable in Luke 16 about the shrewd manager where the boss is going to fire him. And he says, get your things in order because I'm going to let you go. I don't have any more work for you. I'm going to fire you. And the guy says, oh, no. I'm too old to work. I'm too proud to beg. I got to figure out what I'm going to do. And so he says, I know what I'll do. I'm going to go settle all my master's debts. And so he goes to one person and he says, how much do you owe my master? Oh, I owe him a hundred barrels of you know oil. He goes, well, make it 50 or something like that and then settle. And he goes to another, how much do you owe? I owe him this many bushels of wheat. We'll make it less than that and settle for that. And so what he does is he takes his master's stuff that they owe him and he discounts it, which he was not supposed to do. But he does it so that those people will like him. Because what he is doing is investing in people so that when he's out of this job, maybe one of them will give him a job. And Jesus commends the wise steward, not because he was dishonest, but because he was shrewd and he knows that friendship is of more value than just the work or the material. And we see that with David, that David is making friends. And so here the prophets, oh yeah, I'll help you out, David. These disgruntled people, yeah, we're with you, David. And I don't know how how to to present this because I, I think this is one of those areas where we have neglected the importance of being nice. And being friendly. You would think it was a natural thing, but I don't know how many times people who are followers of Christ can come across as very abrasive. Very, I, I've, I've got it all together, you don't. I can't hang out with you. Why? Because, you know, I, I don't like people who smoke or who drink or who are in this lifestyle or or whatever, fill in the blanks. And so what we do is we distance ourselves from anyone who's not like us. And that's just so contrary to the teachings of Christ. And we don't realize that there is not only the opportunity to communicate clearer with people that you're friendly with, but there's also things you can actually gain from people that aren't followers of Christ if you would just be nice to them. How many of you work for someone who's not a follower of Jesus? There's a lot of people here. Heaven, who do you work for? And so think of how much you have to gain by just being nice to people who don't know Jesus, but actually you can get something. Now, you're not being friendly to them because you're going to get something from them. It's just the wise thing to do. It has benefits. And it's something that I think is clear throughout Scripture and something that we see here. Is it warm in here? Yes. Can we get some air going? Thank you. I can pass out. That would be entertaining, but... And so we see David makes friends, people like him, and he's actually kind to people. Now, let's see the contrary. Verse 6, we're going to read about Saul. Now, Saul heard that David and his men had been discovered. Now, how do you think he heard about that? Somebody told him. Somebody told him. 
Okay, yeah, somebody told now. But how could, how was it that, it, think about it. What did we just read? How many people are now with David? 400. It's easy to hide by yourself. 400 guys are going to be a little harder, right? And so David's starting to develop a following. He's starting to get some acclaim. Hey, did you see where those 400 guys went? Yeah, that, those are David's guys. Okay, so now it's getting harder to stay away, but that's what's taking place. There's, there's becoming a, a change that's going to transition here. We're moving from, again, the reign of Saul to what is going to be the reign of David, and it's slowly taking place, and God is at work in all this, these disgruntled people. And the moving here and trying to stay one step ahead. So Saul discovers about this. And Saul was seated, spear in hand. Now, what happened the last time Saul was seated, spear in hand? Right? So this isn't a good circumstance. When you read that Saul was seated with a spear in his hand, something's going to happen. Usually you don't sit down with a spear in your hand. cup of coffee maybe, but not a spear. Under the tamarisk tree on the hill at Geba, with all his officials standing at his side, he said to them, listen, men of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give all of you fields and vineyards? Will he make all of you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? Is that why you have all conspired against me? Now, have they all conspired against him? No. The guy's paranoid but he's got a spear, okay? It plays an important part in how he has control. Is that why you've all conspired against me? No one tells me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse, none of you is concerned about me or tells me that my son has incited my servants to lie in wait for me as he does today. A couple of things here. First of all, Saul is going on about things that aren't altogether true. Now, his son, Jonathan, did make a covenant with David, but he's not conspiring to lay in wait for him. He's not setting up an ambush for him. And notice, too, that Saul keeps calling David the son of Jesse. There's a reason for that. Do you guys remember? I don't remember what election it was, but there was a presidential debate and during the debate, one of the candidates that was running against the incumbent didn't address him as Mr. President. They called him by his name. And it was a big deal. It was like, why did he do that? Well, he was trying to take away whatever authority he had. And the news made a big deal about it. Oh, they didn't call him Mr. President. They called him, I forget which president it is, so I don't know, Joe. You know, they called him by his name. And that's what Saul is trying to do. The son of Jesse, who was Jesse? He's a farmer. Okay, he was a, a shepherd. He was a lower class citizen. He wasn't of noble birth. He wasn't even in the priestly line. He, he was just a shepherd. And so calling him the son of Jesse is really trying to put him down and keep him from being elevated. And we see here that Saul is indeed paranoid. And so he calls him these things. In verse 9 he says, But Doag, the Edomite, who was standing with Saul's officials, said, I saw the son of Jesse come to Ahimelech, son of Ahitab, at Nob. Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for him. He also gave him provisions and the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Then the king sent for the priest Ahimelech, son of Ahitab, and all the men of his family who were the priests of Nob. And they all came to the king. Saul said, Listen now, son of Ahitab. Yes, my lord, he answered. Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the sons of Jesse, giving him bread and a sword, inquiring of God for him, so that he has rebelled against me and lies in wait for me as he does today? Ahimelech answered the king, Who of all your servants is as loyal as David, the king's son-in-law, captain of your bodyguard, and highly respected in your household? Was that Day, the first time I inquired of God for him? Of course not. 
Let not the king accuse your servant or any of his father's family, for your servant knows nothing at all about this whole affair. Doeg. Remember him last chapter? It says that he was there and he had to be there. We don't know exactly why that he was there for some reason. He was being basically uh, maybe ceremonial cleaning or something. He's an Edomite, so he's not a a Jew by birth. And there was that little scene where he saw what was going on. And so he comes up and he says, hey, I know that Ahimelech, the priest, helped David. And so he's kind of feeding into Saul's madness. Saul calls the priest over there and says, why have you done this? Why have you conspired? And Ahimelech, being innocent, says, why wouldn't I? David's loyal. He, he's, and notice that he calls him your son-in-law. He doesn't call him the son of Jesse. He's your son-in-law. Why wouldn't I inquire of God for him? I've done it before. I don't know what you're talking about. And so he he brings out this accusation to Ahimelech. And Ahimelech's words, even though they're true, they are unable to persuade Saul's delusion. As we see in verse 16. But the king said, you will surely die, Ahimelech, you and your whole family. Then the king ordered the guards at his side, turn and kill the priests of the Lord. Think about that. Because they too have sided with David. They knew he was fleeing, yet they did not tell me. But the king's officials were unwilling to raise a hand to strike the priests of the Lord. The king then ordered Doeg, you turn and strike down the priests. So Doeg, the Edomite, turned and struck them down. That day, he killed 85 men who wore the linen ephod. Those are priests. He also put to to the sword knob the town of the priests with its men and women, its children and infants, and its cattle and donkeys and sheep. And so now there's just a massacre. Why? Because Saul is paranoid. Because Saul is so enraged that he can't see the truth and he's willing to do incredible evil and justify it in his mind. Something happens to us when we become enraged. Have you guys ever gotten so mad that reason goes out the window? Uh, yes, I got some honest people here. Maybe you're in an argument, maybe it's even with your, your husband, your wife, or your kids, or, or a friend. And as you're talking, pretty soon you don't care what you say, you just want to say something that hurts. You guys ever been there? Really? I've never been. Uh, There's times where I've said things, and as they're going out of my mouth, I'm saying, oh my gosh, what did you just say? How could you say that? And and it's like something inside you almost goes, did you really say that? It's almost like you can see yourself looking at yourself saying, what's wrong with you? Who are you? Where did you go? Come back. And I've been surprised that even when I hear that exclamation of, oh my gosh, what did you just say? I can continue in that vein. Because anger blinds us and the rage does not get satisfied. You see, there's no amount of blood that is going to stop Saul from killing. Because his anger is to the point where he doesn't care. He will kill whoever. Remember, he tried to kill his own son, Jonathan. He chucked a spear at him. And now he's killing the priests of the Lord unjustly. Didn't hear what they had to say. 
He's just seeing red, and he's going to kill everything that stands in the way of him killing David. He is that angry. And that's what anger does to us. And we need to recognize that. That we, when we are angry, and when we are unloving, we are most unlike God. That we do not have his appearance. And here we see that so clearly portrayed. And, and again, this is probably Saul's worst moment. I mean, things have gone, been going bad, but this is probably the bottom. And he doesn't really get up from here, but this is probably the worst thing that he did in his rage against David. What is the worst thing we've done? You don't don't answer me. I don't want to hear right now. That'd be <laughs> oh oh oh. But you see, there will be a time when you hit that bottom. Maybe it is. Hopefully, it's behind you and not ahead of you. What do you do from here? Do you stay there or do you move forward? You see, Peter cursed and denied the Lord three times, but he was restored. Judas betrayed the Lord, but never turned back to him. Who are we going to be like? David, later on, would kill Uriah, would murder to cover his sin with Bathsheba, but he would turn. Saul doesn't turn. He stays in this place. And I say this to let us know that there is always the opportunity to turn. There is always the freedom to make the different choice. Just like I was talking earlier, you know, we have the freedom to do wrong. That same freedom can be used to do right. And so when we have this free will and it affords us the opportunity to do incredible things like this, or the anger that we show, or the rebellion against God, or the sin that we engage in, that same freedom provides opportunity to do incredible good, but it requires intention. It requires the diligence to want to do it and see through. But just imagine if Saul would have taken this energy and this anger and instead turned and repented and tried to do something constructive for God. Well, we talked about it. There was a point where Samuel said, no, the kingdom's been taken from you and it's going to be given to another. Which leads us to believe that at one time he had the opportunity. But he made the wrong choice. Again, choice, choice. It always comes up. It keeps coming here. Okay. Verse... 20. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, son of Ahitub, named Abathar, escaped and fled and joined David. He told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. Then David said to Abathar, that day when Doeg the Edomite was there, I knew he would be sure to tell Saul, I am responsible for the deaths of your whole family. Stay with me. Don't be afraid. The man who wants to kill you is trying to kill me too. You will be safe with me. There's that moment when David saw Doeg. And you ever have those moments when you see someone and it's like something's wrong here. Something doesn't belong. Something just doesn't feel right. You have that intuition. Well, that's what David's saying. I knew that he was going to cause a problem. Remember, David went and he was deceitful. He didn't want Ahimelech to know what was going on. Last week, I think it was Daniel who, who said that his commentary actually said that it was to actually try and keep Ahimelech from danger. 
Again, we talked about the commentaries last time, how a lot of them just saw the fault and the sin, but we actually see David may have tried to prevent this from happening to Ahimelech, but he saw Doeg and he thought, I knew that guy, something was wrong with him. And so he takes the blame and he says, I am responsible for the death of your whole family. Now let me ask you, is David responsible for the death of the priests and the family? Who is? Saul. And so David, even though he went there and lied to Himelech, he didn't kill the priests. We're responsible for what we do. We're not responsible for what someone else does. And parents, that's a good thing to remember as your kids become older. Because you will easily want to take responsibility for every wrong that they do and blame it on your upbringing. Well, maybe you will. Maybe you won't. But it can happen. It does happen a lot. And you realize that at some point they make their decisions. And gosh, what parent couldn't have done a better job? You know, I think every parent looks back and says, oh, I wish I would have done that different, you know, but I did teach them how to blow things up and they do that well. Um, But so many things we could have done differently, but at some point they have to make their decisions and they do. And we are responsible for our decisions as well. But what we do see in David is an identification being responsible in his own heart for the fact that they they died because he's after me, and if it wasn't for me, they would have been alive. That's pretty much what he's trying to get to. But what I love here is that David says, stay with me, don't be afraid. The man who wants to kill you is trying to kill me too. You will be safe with me. David does something here that I think we see is why these misfits were drawn to him. He welcomes them. Hey, the problems you're having, I'm having them too. You can stay with me. You got no money? Hey, I got no money either. We'll we'll work something out. Guy's trying to kill you? Yeah, he's trying to kill me. And there's this identification that takes place with Ahimelech's son. Now, David writes another psalm, and this one is about Doeg. So let's turn there to Psalm 52. And again, look at the beginning. It says, For the director of music, David, when Doeg the Edomite had gone to Saul and told him, David has gone to the house of Ahimelech. So he's writing this song for Doeg, okay? Why do you boast of evil, you mighty hero? Question mark. Why do you boast all day long? You who are a disgrace in the eyes of God, you who practice deceit, your tongue plots destruction. It's like a sharpened razor. You love evil rather than good, falsehood rather than speaking the truth. You love every harmful word, you deceitful tongue. Surely God will bring you down to everlasting ruin. He will snatch you up and pluck you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous will see and fear. They will laugh at you saying, here now is the man who did not make God his stronghold, but trusted in his great wealth and grew strong by destroying others. But I am like an olive tree, flourishing in the house of God. I trust in God's unfailing love forever and ever. For what you have done, I will always praise you in the presence of your faithful people. And I will hope in your name, for your name is good. Speaking of the Lord. And so here he writes about Doeg, and he says that he's deceitful. He he wanted gain. He wanted wealth, but it wasn't the right way. He was actually going against God, and what he was thinking was going to set a position for himself was a stronghold, was not going to be very strong. Remember, there's going to be a shift. 
Saul and his might that Doeg is siding with is changing. He just picked the losing team. And now David is going to be on the winning team. And then where is Doeg going to be? Well, David's writing a little song about it. I'll let you know where you're going to be when the stronghold that you've attached yourself hold isn't very strong, but where I am is. And so we see that these things that are pretty powerful. Imagine, again, if you were David and you were fleeing, and now you used to have a home, but now your home is a cave called refuge. What do you do? Here's what David did. He wrote a song about God being his refuge. And here is David now fleeing, and then he hears word from Ahimelech, one of his sons, that, yeah, my dad and all the priests have been killed by Saul. And Doeg said that he helped you. And so David writes a song about Doeg and just lets him know, nah, you're going to get yours. Destruction is going to be for you because you're deceitful and writing those things. And, and that's, again, just kind of giving the emotion of what was happening at this time and in these moments. Any questions on this chapter or things that stand out to you? You wouldn't? <laughs> Okay, Pat. <laughs> I mean, if I had known that 85 priests plus the families, the children and everything died because the king was after me and killed them instead, it would weigh on me. Of course not, but David feels responsible just because he knows that he's the target and they just got in the way. And then Doeg lied and made it seem like they were helping and so that fed it. Fuel, but it's just what a terrible thing. Yeah. What a terrible thing to have to have that on your conscience. Yes, Lola. Well, we see that with Doeg, don't we? Yeah. 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 Definitely. Definitely. Yeah, I mean, our actions influence others, and we are responsible for that influence. Definitely. Well, and he fits the criteria for all the people who are now following David. He's in distress, he's in debt, and he's discontented. Join us. Yes, Cindy. Yeah, there's definitely more than just the men. Yeah. Yep, there's a little entourage. Yeah. It's powerful. I mean, you don't realize how valuable people are. I mean, it's through people that you get word of possible jobs. You get a word in. Sometimes it's not, you know what you know, it's who you know kind of a thing. I mean, it just plays in such an important role in so many areas of our lives. And it's just an area where we need to recognize that Jesus taught us to invest in. And it was, how did he put it? He says, you know, the, the children of this world are wiser than the children of heaven because they use money for the right reasons. In other words, they use the money, which was what he said, hey, just give us half of this to develop the right relationship. And so he commended that aspect of it, and I think that's something we need to learn, is how to invest in that. Any other questions? No? Okay. I want to encourage you guys next week to read chapter 23. And if you have any questions... You can ask them. Don't promise I'll answer them, but we'll, we'll try. Uh, but let's pray. Lord, as we read these things, you know, we read them as a story of what transpired, but they are so full of emotion. Lord, David is homeless and on the run, living in caves with this little entourage of disgruntled people and it's going to turn into a movement Saul is enraged and he massacres the city of priests and their families because of his rage this is such a stark point in history, in Saul's history as well as in David's. This is a moment that 
we can look back on and say how, how terrible, but we are to learn from this, God. We are learn to learn what anger and rage can do to us. And Lord, again, we may never go to the extent that Saul did, but what extent do we go to when we are blinded by rage and fueled by jealousy and anger? How does our reason go out the window when we are fueled by these emotions? And what good can we do if we would allow the opportunity of friendship to be built within those around us at work, at school, in our family? If we would invest in people and in the friendships not look at them as conquests, but invest in people and allow people to invest in us. Lord, what are the dividends? Lord, it took David from being alone and on the run to eventually establishing the kingdom. And it was with the most unlikely people. God, we don't get to choose the people we want all the time. We're given people who are disgruntled and who are in debt and who are discontent. And Lord, many times they're not the people we would want to entrust with the things that need to be entrusted with, but they're the people that are around us. They're the people that we have opportunity to invest in. Give us wisdom. How we can take this group who is around us who might be discontent and turn them into mighty people with purpose and useful. Lord, may we learn from David and his leadership qualities. Thank you again for the truths that are in this chapter that we can put into our lives. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.